You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. The contents of a scathing email obtained by Global News is putting the spotlight on a specialized unit of the Surrey RCMP and has prompted an internal review of the team. The message calls out members for neglecting the basics of good policing, potentially even letting criminals get off scot-free. Ramina Dea has our exclusive report. The Surrey RCMP's specialized South Community Response Unit, seen here trying to apprehend a suspect last year, can no longer operate undercover or drive unmarked police cars. The team's surveillance privileges now suspended. Global News has obtained screenshots circulating amongst police officers from an email dated March 2nd. Staff Sergeant Jag Saran said South CRU members have demonstrated their inability to perform the basic foundations of Policing 101. It's uh, very concerning and it's very disturbing and uh, it uh, undermines public confidence uh, in policing. The province's top cop, Mike Farnworth, says an internal review within the RCMP is underway. Over the past two years, there have been several incidents where surveillance tactics were applied properly, said Staff Sergeant Saran, adding that last month, two police cruisers were damaged and several officers suffered minor injuries. The incident, a traffic stop of an erratic driver near 152 and 24th Avenue. The suspect allegedly rammed a police car into a pole. He's now facing charges. South CRU now benched from certain duties because throughout the year, there have been obvious breaches of law and policy, said Saran's email, adding the breaches have resulted in many charges being stayed or not approved. Saran goes on to say several files and incidents that could have resulted in professional standards unit investigations were dealt with at the lowest level and many officer and public safety concerns were raised on a regular basis. The public needs to have confidence uh, that uh, when police are out on, the, uh, on patrol or doing their duty out in the community, that they are obeying the laws, they're following the procedures. Surrey RCMP refused to do an on-camera interview regarding specific questions because last month's incident is still before the courts and an internal review is still ongoing. How is the public supposed to believe that this process is going to be transparent, that people are going to be held accountable when this is an internal review within the RCMP. The fact that uh, we are having this conversation uh, is uh, shining a spotlight on it. It starts with an internal review and there may be other consequences that flow from that. Romina Dea, Global News. Well, body-worn cameras are now standard for police officers in many jurisdictions across North America, but not in this province. Just yesterday, Alberta announced cameras will be mandatory there. But as the Madagahi reports tonight, not only does B.C. still have no such requirement, there's no timeline to bring one in. 
This video showing a father being arrested in front of his son in East Vancouver quickly went viral last fall. Get off him! The incident was initially taken out of context because it was recorded by a passerby who didn't capture the entire confrontation. Scenarios that can unfairly harm the public's trust in policing, something the Alberta government is attempting to put to an end this week. The Alberta's government is taking steps to increase accountability and trust in policing by mandating the use of body-worn cameras for all police services in the province of Alberta. Alberta's provincial mandate on police body cameras is the first of its kind in Canada. In B.C., there are province-wide rules, standards and procedures for these cameras, but no mandate for police to use them. Every frontline officer in Canada should be equipped with a body camera. I believe that our society expects it now. In 2021, Vancouver's police chief told the province that given the current landscape surrounding policing, he felt the advent of body-worn cameras will strengthen the trust and confidence in policing. But at this point right now, it is local governments, that, uh, local police departments that do get to make uh, that decision. BC perhaps not ready to force body cameras and their major costs on local detachments. And while they can be extremely helpful in investigations, there are limitations. Many cameras use fisheye lenses. Fisheye lenses, the courts have found, have a tendency to distort images and their distances and also lead to blurring around the outside frames of the camera. This makes it quite difficult to calculate force, speed and distance. We've seen from jurisdictions um, that already have this technology um, that even with the technology, uh, the police, if they have control over it, will withhold it and maintain certain narratives. Vancouver City Council has already committed to introducing VPD body cameras by 2025, while Delta Police already are testing the technology. Emadagahi, Global News. Abbotsford police and IHIT are investigating the suspicious death of a 24-year-old woman. Police were called to a Mackenzie Road apartment complex at about 8.30 on Tuesday night and found the woman's body inside a unit. Police say they believe the incident is isolated and there's no risk to public safety. If you have any information about what happened or dash cam footage from the area, you're asked to call IHIT. The federal government has committed millions of dollars in funding to prevent gun violence in the Okanagan. The announcement today in Kelowna that Ottawa will distribute nearly $7 million to various communities to prevent gun violence with early intervention with at-risk young people. We know we can't arrest our way out of the problems on our streets and in our communities, and that's why we're steadfast in our commitment to focus on the grassroots causes of gun violence. What this does is provides us to partner with existing activities and enhance activities that are already semi underway in our communities, but now it can be targeted and focused and use this as a combination resource. The new funding will allow Central Okanagan schools to hire new staff to lead the strategy and to launch new support systems. And a new ad campaign is taking aim at gangs and gun crime. Anyone can be a hero. Crime Stoppers is launching its latest guns and gang PSA with a series of faux movie trailers, TV ads and social media posts. 
The goal is to encourage people with knowledge about gang activity or illegal guns to anonymously get that information to police. Crime Stoppers says its previous campaigns led to more than 200 gun and gang-related arrests and the seizure of more than 300 illegal weapons. Well, the provincial government is giving TransLink a half-billion-dollar bailout. Money the mayor's council says is needed to cover the drop in ridership over the pandemic. But as Richard Zussman reports, the emergency funding doesn't address TransLink's longer-term issues. The B.C. government's spending train making another stop pulling into the station just in time to help out TransLink. What we definitely don't want to do right now is have uh, TransLink cut back services, cause people not to come back to transit because the service simply isn't there for them, causing fewer people to choose transit, causing further cutbacks because of reduced revenue. The province providing $479 million to the transit provider to keep fares stable and avoid service cuts. The risk of not taking action, of not investing in our public transit service that hundreds of thousands of people here use every single day was just too great. The government forced to mine the gap on ridership levels. Due to the pandemic, April of 2020 ridership was just 17% of normal, climbing to 60% in early January, and is now around 80%, a full bounce back taking longer than expected. Today provides us with the certainty for our operations. In the near term, we will continue to work with our partners for more permanent funding solutions. Those long-term funding challenges compounded by the fact that behaviors are changing. More people are working remotely, less reliant on public transit, and the province is moving towards electric vehicles, meaning fewer taxes will be collected through the gas tax. This is one-time money, and we're talking about, you know, again, we're going to be facing shortfalls in the years to come. The hope was the federal government would also deliver on both short- and long-term funding, but they were a no-show. I'm disappointed frankly, that they're not here with us today. Uh, but uh, we expect those conversations to continue. People expect all levels of government to come to the table to fund the transit services that we need. And it is incredibly unfortunate that the federal government didn't step up on this occasion. There's still hope Ottawa will jump on board with plans for Mayor Brad West and others to head to the nation's capital in May to ask for much-needed help to fill the fare box. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And Keith Baldry joins us with more on this. Keith, one of the ideas that has been kicked around for years to fund transit is mobility mm -hmm. pricing or road pricing. And there mm -hmm. was some confusion around that today. Yes, courtesy of Premier David Eby. So he was asked about different ways to fund transit, including the, as you mentioned, very controversial policy of mobility pricing or road tolling. And it's the way he answered this, or the way he didn't answer it, that caused some confusion. So take a listen to the back half of his answer to that question. So these are uh, the innovative approaches we're taking to uh, funding the build-out of the transit system. Uh, there are lots of different ways of approaching that funding, and we're uh, certainly prepared to look at any proposals that are brought forward by municipal government, uh, by TransLink, and we expect the federal government at the table as well. So he was less than clear in his answer there of ruling out adopting mobility pricing. So the B.C. Liberals quick to pounce, put out a news release saying, wait a minute, he's opened the door here for what is likely to be a very unpopular policy. No sooner had that news release come out than the Premier's office under David Eby's Twitter account took to social media and Twitter and sent this tweet out very quickly. Today we announced new funding for transit riders to prevent cuts in skyrocketing fares. Disappointed with the Fed's absence, but we will still look for ways to secure stable funding for public transit. The key line, I'm 
proud our government got rid of bridge tolls and we won't bring in new road tolling. So the pre uh, Premier much clearer on social media than he was at the news conference uh, that preceded this. Again, uh, bridge tolls, as we saw in the 2017 election, might be good policy, public, public policy-wise, terrible politics. And same with road tolling. It may be good public policy from a dry, detached uh, viewpoint. When you blend politics into it and the wishes of voters, it's dead on arrival. So we're not going to see road tolling anytime soon, if ever, in Metro Vancouver. And uh, that tweet has uh, been, I'm sure, screenshot several times. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm, he'll be held to it. Thanks for that, Keith. A Chinatown restaurant that's been around for more than four decades will be serving its final meal next month. Krista Dow has more on the legacy of Kent's Kitchen and what it means for the neighborhood. For more than four decades, Chinatown staple Kent's Kitchen has been the go-to spot for many, serving up generous portions at a budget-friendly price. This one is so famous for its, uh, its quantity. I like the surface, I like the people, I like the food. It tastes good, reasonable. But now the long-standing eatery at 232 Kiefer Street is set to close next month, unable to afford a reported 30% hike in its rent. A very pity because we need this Chinatown. A lot of people live in the neighborhood. They need this. It's another hit to the already struggling Chinatown. Last month, Daisy Garden Restaurant shuttered its doors, citing lack of staff. The losses have many shop owners on edge, like William Liu of Cam Y Dim Sum, who's concerned about not only Chinatown's vitality, but also its survival. They serve the seniors, the SROs, the people on downtown east side. They keep their prices low. It's really tough to look into the future right now. Um. In February, Ottawa committed nearly $2 million for infrastructure improvements. Well, last week, Council approved a pilot development potential relief program aimed at property tax relief for small businesses. Liu says he'd like to see that expanded. But it only applied to 25 businesses out of 300 businesses in Chinatown. And it's not just about cleaning up the streets. It's not just about... Um, graffiti removal. We can't, we can't just look at it from one angle. With hopes of eventually restoring Chinatown to its former glory before even more shops close for good. We are losing Chinatown. It's a pretty bad to say that. We are losing Chinatown. That's fact. fact. You can see that. Chinatown's a fading. Krista Dow, Global News. A disturbing discovery west of Kamloops. 17 wild horses shot and killed. Now, it's not the first time such a thing has happened in just over a minute. Well, it might just be the most talked about TV series on right now. And The Last of Us just made some farm owners in Kingston very happy. We'll explain later. Plus... A major recall by Honda, the problem being flagged, and the vehicles involved. That's still to come on the News Hour tonight. Right now, though, RCMP are investigating a horrendous discovery west of Kamloops. 17 wild horses were shot and killed last week on Crown Land. As Julie Nolan reports, investigators are now trying to figure out who did it and why. Hey, that girl? Yeah. This animal activist is calling a recent shooting of 17 wild horses a heinous act. It's heartbreaking, absolutely. I can't understand why any one person would do such a cruel thing. 
The disturbing discovery was made here on Crown land last Friday, about 65 kilometres west of Kamloops, north of a small town called Wallachine. The investigators went up to that area and they did confirm that 17 horses were in fact uh, deceased and looks as though it was confirmed that they had been intentionally shot. They did appear to be horses that are considered wild and do frequent this part of the province. Unlike this horse in its pen, it's believed there are as many as a thousand wild horses on the Chilcolton Plateau, and sadly, not the first time for this kind of slaughter in BC's interior. In fact, one of the horses that I rescued um, was because that someone had shot her mom, and she was about a two-month-old foal at the time. So with the help of one of the Penticton Indian Band members, we went up and uh, rescued her. The horses are culturally significant for the local Skichisan Indian Band. RCMP are now hoping for tips, anything that will give them clarity on why this happened. Our forensic identification section, along with help from a veterinarian and an RCMP livestock investigator, conducted a very thorough examination of the animals and the scene. Very disheartening act. Uh, senseless act and at this point we don't really know what the motive is. RCMP say their investigators will continue to collect and examine everything available and commit it to a thorough investigation. Julie Nolan, Global News. A 50-year-old Abbotsford man has been arrested after allegedly taking a gun to a hospital. Police say someone in the waiting room of the Abbotsford ER saw a man drop a round of ammunition on the floor. When officers arrived, they found a gun on the suspect. Jonathan McDonald has been charged with possession of a firearm without a license and possession contrary to an order. He will remain in custody until his next court appearance. Surrey RCMP are asking for the public's help to find a missing 91-year-old man. Walter Gillis was last seen this morning at a home in the 14900 block of 68th Avenue. Gillis is 5 feet 8 inches, 8 inches tall, 160 pounds with gray hair and hazel eyes. He might be wearing a plaid shirt black vest, green pants, and a light brown baseball cap. Gillis is believed to be driving a 2013 blue Dodge Caravan with Alberta plates. If you see him or know where he is, you are asked to call RCMP. A warning for snowmobilers after the death of a Williams Lake man. He told us he had unsurvivable injuries that night. The fatal accident just outside his front door and how it could have been prevented. Plus... I have two children, both of whom want to be the Prime Minister. Forty years after that famous moment, what else Bill Wilson wishes he had said that day? Well, it looks like some great news out here on the Surrey-Langley border. Uh, just cleared a crash in this four-way stop of the intersection of 88th Avenue and 192nd Street. Today's Lotto 649 gold ball jackpot is $46 million plus the classic $5 million jackpot. Two jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Surrey. A Williams Lake woman is sending out a warning to snowmobilers after a heartbreaking tragedy that took the life of her husband. As Jennifer Palmer reports, she says it was a fatal accident that could have been easily prevented. 33-year-old Trevor Pierce was no stranger to snowmobiling. His wife Chanel says he lived life to its fullest, but on February 26th, outside their home, Trevor suffered a catastrophic head injury when his friend's sled loading deck hit him. Trevor hit the ramp 
Um, and when he hit it, the sled ramp came up and off of the, the bar it was attached to. And I guess the pressure of the snowmobile brought it back up like a rake effect. A family member and Trevor's young son tried to keep him alive, but he died. Now Chanel wants Trevor's death to help spread awareness about the dangers of improperly attached sled ramps. The one that Trevor was using that day was secondhand. The safety latches attaching the ramp to the truck had been broken off. Nobody knows, nobody talks about it. There's no warnings on the ramps. I mean, my kid's trampoline has more warnings. Make sure the safety clips are on. Industry insiders say when it comes to loading ramps, especially if they're used, make sure they have safety latches or, if possible, bolted down to your truck. Those turnbuckles, they can loosen up, and now the snowmobile deck is loose and it can move, where if it's bolted, it's not going to have that um, happen. But one of the most important safety items to remember is a helmet. I think the biggest thing would be is to wear a helmet um, when you're loading up that morning at your house. The tether for your key um, has to be attached to you. So if you do end up coming off your snowmobile, your snowmobile will turn off. Chanel says since she's been talking about her husband's fatal incident that she's learned about others who've been in dangerous scenarios. She wants safety standards implemented. I would like there to be standards put in place for ramps, even just warnings on the ramp saying that you should strap down and this can cause death. Chanel is proud of her husband and of the father he was and in his death his ability to save so many others through organ donation. My husband touched five people with organ donations, his heart, two kidneys, a liver and a pancreas and then gave eight people the ability to see and that is amazing on its own. Jennifer Palma, Global News. Well, 40 years ago, hereditary chief Bill Wilson, the father of Jody Wilson-Raybould, helped to negotiate and draft the First Amendment to Canada's new constitution. The reform, which helped enshrine Indigenous land and treaty rights, was born out of the First Minister's Conference in March of 1983. In an in-depth interview, Nithu Garcher learned more about Wilson's reflections on that pivotal moment of political change, what's happened since then, and what he would do differently. This home, about an hour drive north from where he was born, is where Bill Wilson spends much of his time with his wife, Bev Sellers. You're forward. Are you going to get Zebedee or Kevin or...? And where the 78-year-old hereditary chief is working on his first book. In my book, I wrote a chapter on my father. And I said, I'll never forgive him for dying before I got to know him. Like his father, Wilson wanted to become a fisherman, but he says his mother encouraged him to pursue higher education. He became the second Indigenous person ever to graduate from University of British Columbia's law school. He would go on to help lead various groups advocating for Indigenous rights. And that put me at the table with uh, Trudeau and the others. And that, I think, is a large part of history, not, not just mine, but... This is history, generally. I have two children in uh, Vancouver Island, both of whom want to be the Prime Minister. <laughs> both, both of whom, Mr. Prime Minister, are women. But Wilson also reflects on what he didn't fight for. Was somehow I missed the lesson of residential schools. I missed it because I didn't have to go. And then because of my privileged position, I, I tended to ignore it. I really wish, I wish I was healthy and 35 years old again.
I probably wouldn't have pursued Aboriginal title and treaty rights as much as I did because the huge effect of residential schools upon our people is still being held and nothing's being done. And there has to be some young people that can pick up the, the torch and, and be, be like. Well, your daughter became the first Indigenous Attorney General of this country. You know, I'm nothing but proud of Jody, but we, we saw what the system did to her. You know, and a Prime Minister I consider to have inferior intellectual qualifications was able to use a machine to force out probably one of his only brilliant cabinet ministers. And uh, I mean, if they could do that to people like Jody, they can do it to anybody. When asked what legacy he would want to leave, Wilson says it centers around being rooted in Indigenous identity. Neetu Garcha, Global News, Campbell River. And to watch the extended interview with Bill Wilson and Bev Sellers, tune in to BC One tonight and this weekend. You can also watch on our website, globalnews.ca. Coming up, accelerating Canada's vaccine production. And so this is re revolutionary for medicine. How a new BC-based innovation hub will help Canada respond better to future health crises. And the Prime Minister just tasked with investigating foreign election interference. Good evening. Traffic is moving well in both directions over here tonight at the Alex Fraser Bridge, with just a little bit of leftover volume on the east-west connector between Knight and the S-curve. BCA member, save three cents per liter off fuel at Shell, plus 10% off in-store purchases and car washes. Conditions apply. Visit shell.ca slash BCAA. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Former Governor General David Johnson has been appointed as the government's special rapporteur to help prevent foreign election interference. Last Monday, Justin Trudeau announced the creation of the job to investigate allegations of election meddling and make recommendations on how to combat it. Those allegations were first brought to light in a series of global news stories. The PM appointed Johnston to lead the investigation instead of launching a public inquiry, which is something Trudeau's political foes have been calling for. Johnston was appointed Governor General in 2010, while Stephen Harper was Prime Minister and served in that role until 2017. Honda is issuing a recall for 500,000 vehicles in North America due to a seatbelt issue. CRVs, Accords, Odysseys and Insights, model years 2017 to 2020, are affected. Regulators say the release button on the seatbelt buckle shrinks in lower temperatures, causing it to stop the buckle from latching properly and making it a serious hazard in the event of a crash. Honda says there have been no reports of injuries caused by the issue so far, and dealers will replace the release buttons if needed. At the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, there was criticism and questions as to why Canada didn't have its own facility to develop a vaccine. An announcement today in Vancouver hopes to change that and more. Grace Key reports. In my lab here at UBC, we work on developing next-generation RNA vaccines and therapies. The COVID vaccine would not have been possible without UBC's research team. Now they're exploring where to go next with the mRNA technology. Right now, with 15 mils with the current approved uh, vaccines, you can get to around uh, 60, uh, about 
60 doses. One particular work tries to get more vaccine doses from the same volume. But with self-amplifying RNA, the same volume, the same mm. mass of RNA, we are actually able to get to 3,000 mm. doses. Their work hasn't gone unnoticed. BC will be home to Canada's immuno-engineering and biomanufacturing hub led by UBC, with $2 million in federal funding over four years. This new innovation hub will position Canada as a global leader in the production of cutting-edge pharmaceuticals. We first heard of mRNAs as a potent vaccine against COVID, but that's really just the beginning of its potential. For example, if a child is born lacking a particular protein, uh, that's uh, a rare disease, uh, for example, uh, then we can make the messenger RNA that makes that protein and we can then inject that into that person, that child, and um, produce the protein that they're lacking and essentially save their lives. The use of mRNA as a vaccine has been around for decades. It was only recently researchers discovered how to make it less toxic and how to deliver it into a cell, just in time for the pandemic. This extends right through to cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's. All of those, all of those diseases now can be approached using these, you know, they're basically molecular biology uh, genetic medicine approaches. And it's going to revolutionize medicine, just being able to do things in such an individualized way and do them so quickly. This is one of five new research hubs across Canada, research that will help ensure a healthier future for all Canadians. Grace Key, Global News. Up next, a long-running sports festival is about to reach the finish line. We've certainly heard from people that have participated as volunteers that the event has been life-changing. After 50 years, why Operation Track Shoes is about to run its last lap. And talk about a bad day on the slopes. What happened on Mount Washington that has the RCMP looking for this man? Comox Valley RCMP are looking for public help to identify the suspect in a ski hill assault. It happened on Jack's Run on Mount Washington at about 2 in the afternoon on March 8th. Police say the suspect hit the skis of another man who was resting and then got upset, punching the victim in the face, tackling him to the ground, and he wasn't done yet, then he headbutted him. If you can identify this skiing suspect, you are asked to contact Comox Valley RCMP. All right, let's bring in Yvonne Shell with a look at our forecast. Still some spring skiing, but uh, definitely feeling more balmy down here. Yeah, a bit mild in the coming days. We've got some sunshine in the mix. Beautiful shot. It's picturesque out there. And we're going to continue to see this weather picture in the coming days, which is great timing for spring break, but it is going to be mild. And I'll show you the warmest day in just a moment. Temperatures are currently sitting at 7. We climbed up closer to 9. We're right around the average for this time of the year. Uh, 10 is the average and a record of 14. That was set back in 2003. Now, as we get in towards this evening, we'll just see a few clouds in the mix. Do keep in mind, though, it is still going to be chilly will be dipping down to close to the freezing mark for the early morning hours do bundle up and then as we get in through the day tomorrow we're back into that sunshine it'll be very pleasant it's all courtesy of this ridge of high pressure that continues to build along the central and southern half of the province blip in the forecast will be along the northern half where we're still seeing that chance for some showers wanted to show you the long range now these are temperatures away from the water temperature trend for Abbotsford Friday Saturday we could see anywhere between 15 and 16 degrees so a great start to the weekend 
And then we are going to see the return for some wet weather on Sunday. And the future cast will show that. So if you're making plans for the weekend, Saturday, really the gem out of the forecast. And then on Sunday, we'll have that cloud cover rolling in with some showers moving in for all areas along the south coast. Here's what we're tracking, though, for the northern half of the province. A few wet flurries inland through the morning hours near Terrace and then changing over to a chance for some showers. Remaining dry for the central interior with that sunshine through the afternoon, closer to five. Double digits for the interior, the Thompson Okanagan getting up to between 10 and 11 degrees. Whistler will see some sunny breaks closer to eight and across the island. Areas near Victoria will bump up to 11 degrees. We'll see that range in temperature, so away from the water, a couple of degrees warmer. Double digits in the coming days, comfortable for Friday, Saturday. Change on the way will be for Sunday with the chance for some showers, but temperatures still bumping up to 12. Tonight's weather window, a great shot. This was captured snowshoeing. Dorothy took this in Battleship Lake today and a view of Mount Washington. So. All right, thank you, Yvonne. Well, it's offered a weekend of sports and camaraderie for people with developmental disabilities for decades. But this year's Operation Track Shoes event will be the last. Held at the University of Victoria every June, it's entirely run by volunteers. And as Kylie Stanton reports tonight, that's proven difficult to maintain. For more than half a century, it's been a constant for the city, volunteers, and most importantly, the competitors. Started with a one-day event in 1971, and very quickly it evolved into a weekend event where we bring together people from all over the province of BC. Ready, set, pull! Times have changed, but the mandate has not. Hi, Mom and Dad. Hope you're watching me. Operation Track Shoes is and has always been as much about the promotion of awareness and respect for people with developmental disabilities as it is about competition and participation. You learn a lot about yourself and you gain a lot of tolerance and compassion for other people. Eh? There are track, field, and swim meets tailored for people of all ages and levels of ability. But this year, what will mark Operation Track Shoes' 50th event will be the last. It was definitely a very difficult decision to make. It's been one that we've been looking at for some time, but we don't have the, the resources to continue be beyond um, 2023. Armstrong says she and the board have tapped as many resources as possible in an effort to keep things going. But it's not entirely a financial decision. Every year, as many as 500 competitors participate, requiring just as many volunteers. Recruiting the necessary personnel has proven to be a challenge. It's not easy. But knowing the event is now coming to an end, the plan is to get the word out in order to go out on a high. It will be a celebration. One. And the countdown Two. is on. Three. Operation Track Shoes and all those who have kept it running will cross the proverbial finish line this June. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. All right, time to bring in Squire Barnes with a look ahead to sports. And is it possible playoff hopes for the Canucks might actually be alive? Yes, but not the Canucks you might be thinking of. No, these are not the Canucks you're looking for. Well, I mean, the Abbotsford Canucks... According to head coach uh, Jeremy Colleton, the Abbotsford Canucks are looking very much like a playoff team this year. And it's not just because of the young prospects who are down there, but also the veterans. But I think the veterans have shown improvement too. Like we have some older guys, um, 27, 28, 29-year-olds who have improved. 
Yeah, the Abbey Canucks are the sixth best team right now in the American Hockey League, and they're looking to start the playoffs at home this season. Also tonight, we're like, no, that can't be. <laughs> I was seen in the hit TV series, The Last of Us has raised the profile of a farm in Kingston. We start with soccer. We're going to go all the way down to Honduras, San Pedro Sula. That's where the Whitecaps were this afternoon. I'm, I like traveling. All right. Well, maybe one day you can go there. Um, by winning the first game 5 nothing at BC Place, which I know you've traveled to, the uh, Whitecaps uh, got the chance to rest a lot of regulars in the second game of Champions League play against Real España of Honduras. It was a total goal series, so even though Vancouver lost this afternoon 3-2, in 30-degree heat with a lot of wind, they still won the series. Not a lot of people there. Very, very small crowd to watch this one. Okay, Thomas Hassall was in goal for Vancouver. Nice save. Vancouver's had a lot of trouble on set pieces this year. They would again today, but Hassall stops it right there. Chance for a Sergio Cordova to score for Vancouver, but his shot doesn't get a lot on it, and the goalie gets a piece of it, and then the rest of it is stopped on the line. Vanny can laugh about it because he had a 5-0 lead at that point. Uh, Brian White. He can score in Champions League. It'd be nice if he could score in his chances in MLS play. That made it 1-0 and that pretty much puts it away because now Real uh, Espana would have to win like, I don't know, 6-1, 7-1. They do take a 2-1 lead here. Ramiro Roca's goal. That's in the 75th minute, but Simon. Becker. Simon Becker, look at the move here. And then goes short side to make it 2-2 in the 83rd minute. Now, Real Espana would score one more, but in the aggregate, Vancouver won it by the score of 7-3, but they weren't happy with their set pieces again. Actually, it's good that we considered those goals on the set plays when at the end it didn't count because we need to work on it, because again, it's been a part of the game that we haven't been good. At the end, I told the guys, even if they were a little bit down, uh, we did not lose 3-2 today, we won 7-3, so we need to be happy. Well, he doesn't look that happy. The uh, NHL draft lottery is going to be May 8th, 4 o'clock our time. Only teams that finish 22nd in the overall standings or lower have a chance at Connor Bedard because if you win the lottery, you can only move up 10 spaces. Right now, the Canucks are 25th overall, giving them a 6% chance to get Connor Bedard. But the Canucks are also eight points right now from having no chance at Connor Bedard. They're moving up. Andre Kuzmenko's 33rd goal of the season last night was at the end of a kind of passing play you normally see in a video game. Perfect. Now, Kuzmenko is putting together an incredible season when it comes to shooting percentage, possibly the best we've seen this century. He's hitting at 27.3% right now, which is the best this century, but he could still move up in the all-time standings. The best ever for one season, Charlie Simmer, when he was with the Triple Crown line in L.A. Kamloops legend Rob Brown, fifth best shooting percentage when he was with the Penguins, but it's almost impossible to keep that highest shooting percentage year after year. And uh, while Vancouver, despite a five-game 
win streak right now is a long way from the NHL playoffs. Down on Abbey Road, the Baby Canucks are very much in the American Hockey League playoff race. In fact, Abbotsford has the sixth best record in the entire league. Canucks stay on it. Round with a wrist shot stopped by Kincaid. Rebound loose. They score! Hovlander! The AHL playoff push is officially on for the Abbotsford Canucks. With a dozen games to go, Abbotsford sits third in a very competitive Pacific Division. They're 12 games above 500 and poised to host a playoff series for the first time in franchise history. Yes, there's plenty to cheer about down on the farm for a baby Canucks team that's ready to make a deep playoff run. We're grinding and that's probably what I like the most is um, no matter who's in and, and uh, you know guys are, are stretching to you know, give us play in certain roles and and they're competing really hard and we're finding ways to scratch out points. I was fortunate enough to win in 2014 and that was I think my, maybe my second or third year in the league and I think that kind of jump started me to my career and being able to play in the NHL for a few years and um, ultimately being able to play in the Stanley Cup playoffs which who, uh, who knows if I never won or if I never played in another finals in the Calder uh, Cup playoffs who knows maybe I don't get that opportunity. All the way down low takes a big hit from Jet Wu. And that's what your minor league team is all about. To have that happen with both regular season and playoff success is the perfect sweetener. You can look up and down the roster and see it's a combination of young and old players who collectively are steering the Abbotsford Canucks into the playoffs. When you're on a winning team, other teams and this organization here wants winners, right? Everybody wants winners and if you can find a way to do that with your group, it only helps, it helps everybody. So I think everybody has individual goals, but uh, I think we know that this is going to be a big playoffs, and if we can do some good, do some real good things, that it'll just help everybody else. So it's a, it's a good, it's kind of a good system we have going on. How are you playing? Are you, are you doing little things that help the team win? Are you doing things that set up the next line? They score. What you did is still really important. So those are things that we think about as coaches. That's our job. Nice to see the Johnny Canuck logo. I love the uniforms. There you go. Up next, in a zombie apocalypse, how a wool blanket from Ontario might be just the thing to help you survive. Got to get one of those. Jordan Armstrong here now with a look ahead to Global News at 11. Jordan? Sophie, several airlines have been fined by the federal government for violations associated with flight delays and cancellations. The fines are in the thousands of dollars and include things like failing to provide reasons for flight delays and not compensating passengers in a timely manner. Tonight we're hearing from a passenger advocate who says the fines are far too low. Also, a merit man's complaint with the health care system after he says a physiotherapist labeled him, among other things, quote, an uneducated redneck. The story at 11. Sophie? Intriguing. All right, thanks for that, Jordan. A farm on a small island near Kingston, Ontario, has hit it big in Hollywood. Topsy Farms' wool blanket was featured on episode 8 of The Last of Us, one of the most popular shows on TV right now. Global's John Lawless has more, and be warned, there are spoilers ahead. So if you watch the show and you aren't caught up, you need to leave the room now. You thirsty? 
Who knew that a blanket from Amherst Island could get you through the zombie apocalypse? In episode 8 of The Last of Us, the main character Joel is recovering from a flesh wound. And keeping him warm is this wool blanket, which was made at Topsy Farms. And the owners had no idea. We started watching and within a couple of minutes, this blanket came up on the screen with the main characters and we're like, no. It can't be. So yeah, we looked at each other, looked at the blanket, looked at each other like, it's gotta be. Jacob Murray says over a year ago, a production company called Topsy Farms asking for a wool blanket, but couldn't say what show it was for. They sent the blanket, but forgot all about it until they were watching The Last of Us for the first time. Went back through, checked our email, found it, reached out to the buyer and, and actually got the final confirmation that yes, in fact, that is a Topsy Farms blanket in the world's most popular show. And The Last of Us is one of the world's most popular shows. This episode, episode eight, was viewed by 8.1 million people in the US, according to Neil. The Last of Us is the most talked about show right now. We just saw the season one finale. I'm still not emotionally over what happened. Murray says they have seen a bump in blanket sales since the episode aired. There's only one blanket in this style left and Topsy Farms is giving it away in a contest on their social media. The last of their now most famous blanket ever. John Lawless, Global News, Amherst Island. I, I watch it. <laughs> did you play the video game? I didn't. I feel like it's just... Well, if you play the video game, then you know what's going to happen in the whole series. I didn't, okay. so no spoilers. <laughs> but also, a show based on a video game. It's interesting. I, I know. Why didn't they do one for Pong? That would be... A lot of back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Not a lot of drama in that one. All right, that's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for joining us.